0: Welcome back for part four of our study called Divine Selfies. Now, I think most of us know what a selfie is, right? It's a picture that we take of ourselves. Maybe somebody else is in that picture also. Ultimately, the goal, posting that picture somewhere online. Here's a couple of selfies that I've taken recently. It's my grandson. Took a picture with him, a little selfie with him this past week. And this was from week number one of our series where we said, hey, take a picture and then send that out. So there's our middle section there for that selfie. So you get it. You you, you know what selfies are. So let's have a trivia question about selfies. When do you think the first selfie was taken? Let me give you a hint. 2013 Oxford Dictionary made selfie an official word. So when do you think the first selfie was taken? 2004? 2008? What was that? 10. Okay. All right. So we got a few guesses. The first selfie was actually taken in 1839. 1839. Robert Cornelius is credited with taking the very first known selfie. There it is. Homemade camera. Uh, He captured his own picture, but it took 15 motionless minutes to transfer his image over to a metal plate. Now, how about this little crazy um, thought? There was a research project done on college students recently, and they were observing 18 to 24-year-olds taking selfies, editing them posting them, and then captioning them on social media. Here's what they found out. It takes the average college student 26 minutes to get the right selfie and post it online. If you do the math, it takes longer today than it did in 1839 to get a picture to post. I don't know what that says about us, but it's interesting. Now, you could be wondering, like, what does all this selfie talk have to do with God? Well we're in this series called divine selfies because there are 80 plus like portraits of God posted in the Bible but they don't come in the form of pictures like God's selfies come as names that are shared with us in the scriptures so God's selfies are his names now to be clear one God But there are many names that describe him, and each one of these names gives us a little bit more revelation into who he is. Now, we've said that there are three foundational names for the Lord. We've covered two so far, Elohim and Adonai. Elohim is the Genesis 1-1 name for God. In the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. This is a powerful picture of our God as creator, powerful, but also personal. Elohim can reduce down to two letters, E and the L, and when it joins other words, it forms other names for God, like El Shaddai, God Almighty. He's the all-sufficient one. El Elyon, the one who's high, the most high God, high and lifted up, overall, above all. And then El Roi, the God who sees, not only sees everything, But he sees us. The name Adonai that we covered last week means master, lord, king of the universe, sovereign. That name can be joined with Elohim, which can give us the name Adonai Elohim that appears in scripture, which means the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, but also Yahweh Adonai. That gives us a Lord, Lord, or the God who is Lord 310 times. That name is mentioned in Scripture. Today what we're going to focus on is this name. It is the third foundational name for the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, or Jehovah, all right? There are four Hebrew consonants that make up this name, Y, H, W, H, Yahweh, or Jehovah. Now we'll probably refer to it from this point forward in our series more by Jehovah than we do Yahweh, because that's kind of how we have learned the names of the Lord is using the term Jehovah. But as we focus in on this, there there are centuries of Jewish scholars who have treated this name with what we might call superstitious reverence. Let me give you some examples. In the old times, when they would read the Bible, the rabbi would read, and every time you would come to the name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai. They would switch names out of respect or reverence for the name Yahweh, which they thought was too holy to even verbalize. Scribes who wrote handwritten copies of the Old Testament, each time they wrote the name Yahweh, they would break the quill and then they would get a new one saying that a a quill that has written the name Yahweh can't write any other name. And then there are Orthodox Jews today who refuse to say the name Yahweh. Instead, they will talk about the name, the name, the name being Yahweh, even when they write God They won't write G-O-D, they'll just write G-D out of a sense of respect for God's name. Now let me be clear, God never requested any of that kind of cautious admiration about his name. What he spelled out was that we might remember his name. Uh, A text we're going to read from in just a moment in Exodus chapter 3. This is going to be the King James version that I'm going to put in front of you. We can kind of see where perhaps some of the mistakes were made about thinking about God's name in a way that was kind of almost superstitious reverence. Here's what it says in Exodus 3.15. This is my name forever. Talking about the name Yahweh. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial To all generations. Some people heard memorial and thought shrine. Like there's a responsibility of keeping his name under glass like in a trophy case. Or perhaps putting his name in a hall of fame somewhere. Kind of taking on more the meaning of memorabilia than a memorial. Something to look at, not something to use. When I was growing up, I had a friend down the street and he called and said, hey, I got a new football. So I went down and we started to play catch, but a new football uh, is slick. And so you gotta bounce it on the pavement a few times to scuff it up a little bit so that you can get a grip on it. And so after a few throws, we're getting a better grip on the ball. His dad comes home from work, he pulls in, and gets out of the car and comes toward us. I'm like, great, man, his dad's going to join us. We're going to play catch together. But soon we realize he's not coming to play catch. He's coming to get his ball. His ball. Because that particular ball was a personally autographed ball by Jim Brown, his childhood hero. We're talking about the man, Jim Brown, Hall of Famer. Like We were supposed to like look at that ball you don't play with. That's memorabilia, right? Well, the Old Testament people of God treated the name of the Lord like memorabilia. You could look at it, but you couldn't use it. Now, God never intended for his name to be memorialized like that. He wanted people to learn it, know it but then invoke the name of Yahweh in their faith walk to take comfort and refuge and call upon that name. The name Yahweh wasn't supposed to be memorabilia, not supposed to be like mom's good dishes that she only pulls out when you got company or on holidays. Yahweh was meant to be like everyday dishware. Like God wants us to know it and to use his name. Now, Let me point out, I appreciate those who have shown added reverence towards God's name, especially in these days where it feels like people have lost a sense of respect for God. There's a new book come out. The author, John Bevere, I like his writing. He's got this book called The Awe of God. Subtitled, The Astounding Way, A Healthy Fear of God Transforms Your Life. I think we could all use a little more awe of God. But please hear me. Don't confuse an awe for God with a superstitious kind of treatment of His name, Yahweh. Don't buy into that. Based on God's request, here's what I'm encouraging. I want you to know His name. I want you to use that name, include it in your theology and your practice of faith. And where I'm going today is leading us in the direction of having at the end an I am solution for your life. You need an I am solution to your life. What's that? That is a belief that Yahweh wants to be personally involved in your life. From now on, when you hear the name Yahweh, I want you to have this conviction. Like he wants to be personally involved in my life. I love the name Elohim because it speaks of God as that strong creator. I love El Elyon. It it gives us a proper vision of God high and lifted up. But if you're not careful, you'll walk away with an impression of God who is strong but distant. He is transcendent, He is holy, He is other, but He's come near to us. And His desire is to be in our life the great I Am, Yahweh, someone who's positioned to make a difference in your life. He wants to bring, listen, the full weight of His character to bear on your circumstances. He wants to bring his eternal commitment. He wants to bring his unfailing capabilities to be at work in your life. He wants to be the solution, not a solution, but the solution for your life. Listen to Isaiah 43, 11, I, yes, I am the Lord and there is no other Savior. That's what he wants to be. Yahweh the unique solution and savior for your life. Take your Bible, open with me to Exodus chapter 3, and let's take a look at this name of Yahweh or Jehovah. Exodus chapter 3. Now, we're going to read from a very familiar section of scripture. If you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, or you've seen the animated Prince of Egypt, like this, this is detail that you're familiar with. It's the calling of Moses, the commissioning of Moses to be a deliverer. So chapter 3, verse 1 says, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law. He led the flock into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, said to himself. Why isn't this bush burning up? I must go see it. I want you to notice there's a real contradiction happening. Like... Normally, a bush that burns is going to burn up. It's going to be consumed. like that's normal, but something abnormal is happening. There's a contradiction taking place. And rather than the contradiction moving him away further from the Lord, the contradiction actually draws him closer. You should remember that? Look at the next verse. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, here, here I am, Moses replied, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Verse 7. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen The oppression of my people in Egypt. Everybody say seen. Seen. He has seen it. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Say heard. heard. He's seen and heard. Yes, I'm aware. Look at that. He's not aloof. He's not distant. He's not somewhere not noticing or paying attention. I am aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Now look at verse 10. Go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. Now Moses responds to this invitation with several objections. Like he protests God in his wisdom of calling him to be this deliverer. Verse 13, Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they'll ask me what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to people of Israel, I am has sent me You, God also said to Moses, this is my eternal name. I am that I am. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Verse 16, now go, call together the elders of Israel, tell them Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. He told me I have been watching closely. Again, not aloof, not at a distance. He's watching closely And I see how the Egyptians are treating you, the Lord says. I have promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. Now, we reread that and we're familiar with that detail. But there's a real exclusive revelation that's happening in this moment. In fact, Exodus chapter 6 tells us that this particular divine selfie, this name for the Lord... Yahweh is really exclusive revelation. Exodus 6, verse 2, God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. This is an exclusive, like to Moses. It makes me think of like when Oprah Winfrey has an exclusive interview. She sits down with a celebrity and she is the first to get information from them. It's an exclusive. God says to Moses, I'm going to give you an exclusive. I'm going to share a name with you, a revelation of who I am that nobody has ever seen before. So he tells him, here is my name. I am Yahweh Jehovah. Now, even though that's a a moment of uniqueness from that point forward, this becomes God's preferred name used over 6,800 times in the Bible. Michael Gowans, in his book, God's Hebrew Name, says, I am Yahweh is God's permanent, personal, proper name. Now, what does it mean? It's that important. Like, what does his name mean? Y-H-W-H, those four consonants, Yahweh, comes from a root word in Hebrew that means to be or to exist. So when God introduced his name as I am who I am, he revealed himself as one who eternally exists. Eternally exists. And there are some important revelations that come off of that introduction of himself as the I am. Now I'm going to give you five C words, five Cs. When I was a kid growing up, every preacher always would make sure his points rhymed. They all started with the same letter. Or they and I never liked that. Oh, that's too cute. All right? So I don't do that, but today you're getting it, all right? So five Here's the first C, a good revelation into the name I am. It means complete. I am is complete. The fact that he reveals himself in this eternal existence, it establishes a truth that there has never been a time when I am hasn't been. And there will never be a time when I am won't be. He eternally exists. You and I, for us to exist, a man and a woman had to conceive us. Nobody conceived God. He has no beginning. He wasn't created, he wasn't brought into being. He has always been. Right? It's mind blowing. Like The circuitry of the brain just starts to short because we don't have the ability to comprehend like this eternal existence. It also indicates this completeness that God lacks nothing. He always has existed and he lacks nothing. He is complete in himself, Acts 17, 24 through 25. It says he is the God who made the world and everything in it. He has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. The one who is complete meets others' needs out of his sufficiency, but he himself needs nothing. He is complete. The great I am complete. Here's a second C, constant. He's complete but he's also constant. The I am is forever consistent. Bible describes it this way, the same yesterday, today, and forever. My Hebrew professor, Boo Heflin, very well-respected scholar, explained the name Yahweh this way. He said, to get the understanding of the I am, this is the way you should break it down. I am what I have been, and I will be what I am. I am what I've been. I will be constant, consistent. David wrote in Psalm 37, 25, once I was young and now I'm old. That's like him saying, man, look, I've been around the block. Like I didn't just wake up. Like I've lived a little But in all his living, notice this, I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. David says, in all my days, I've never seen God not be who he is. He's constant. He's consistent. Another way for us to frame that is this, to say he is forever faithful. Faithful. God is forever faithful. He was faithful back then. He's faithful now. And he's going to be faithful in the future. Many of you have heard uh, us share about the fact that our firstborn child was born with a genetic liver disease. She had to have a transplant when she was seven years of age. We were watching our grandson uh, this past week and my wife was changing his diaper And he became so like, you know, upset by this event that he's screaming, crying, flopping around. And she calls for me to come to the bedroom and help kind of secure him graciously so he doesn't flop off the bed. And so as she's changing the diaper, he's just crying. He's looking up at me like, come on, man, save me. And I'm looking down at him. I'm holding him down gently and I start having PTSD, (laughs) but not how you think. Like my mind in that moment started to rapidly go back and remember what it was like for a 27 year old me to have to lay on my child as they're poking and prodding and they're drawing blood and she's kicking and she's screaming and they're saying, Sir, you're going to have to hold her down. And I'm having to hold my daughter down. That moment just brought all that back to me. And there was a degree of like trauma that I felt remembering those moments. But you know what else it stirred up in me? A reminder of God's faithfulness. Like in those painful, difficult moments, God demonstrated his faithfulness. And it was a reminder to me to say, you know what? He was faithful back then. He's faithful now. And he'll be faithful forever in the future. Can someone give a little bit of praise and glory to the God who is constant and consistent? Another C. He's current. He's current. There will never be a time he goes out of style. He's current. Notice he's not the I was. He's the I am. Religious teachers during Jesus' day were drilling him about his identity. And Christ made this remarkable statement. John eight fifty eight. He said, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Whew. It was like a mic drop moment. But we read that and we would kind of almost anticipate that when he said, you know, before Abraham was, I was. But instead, he speaks in the present tense. Before he was, I am. That means the eternally existing one stays current. Like he is not and never has been a has been. When you think about your life, you may be at a certain age. Where you're looking over your shoulder and you're thinking about the way things used to be. And you may say to someone else, man, if you knew me back in my prime, like back in high school, I was crushing it. There's some of you that are looking at life, you know, looking forward and you're thinking about what your peak is going to be like. Whether you're looking back. Or you're looking forward, let me say to you, whatever your peak moment is going to be, it ain't going to last that long. Because our skills fade. Like our abilities, they they diminish. But God's skills and God's character never fades. His glory just gets brighter and brighter and brighter because He's current. The I Am. I want you to hear this. The Bible is not a scrapbook of memories of how great God once was. It's actually a living testimony, an ongoing witness to what he is. Like what he did then, he can do now and he can do it in the future because he stays current. There's another C. He's changeless. Changeless. Theologians call this the immutability of God. It He's not susceptible to change or mutation. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. I am the Lord. I do not change. We have to mature, don't we? We have to develop. like We have to improve. We have to change over life. But Yahweh doesn't go through any process of maturation. He's never been put on an improvement plan. Ever Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14, who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or to teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? He doesn't because he is. He is the great I am. He doesn't change. We live in a world that's constantly evolving and changing. Technologies change. Cultures change. People change. But God stays the same. Like He is a bedrock of changelessness that you can build your life on. He doesn't change. Here's the final C, and that is closeness. The I am is revealing closeness. Some theologians even regard this aspect of the I am as the goal behind the revelation to reveal how near God is to his people. Michael Gowans again writes Jehovah is the personal and relational name of God suggesting the thought of his nearness to the people he has claimed for his own. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's near. He's close. He's Jehovah. He is the I am, Exodus chapter 3, we read all of those descriptions. I see them. I hear them. Like I'm aware of their suffering. And I'm even moving closer to them to rescue them. He's not aloof, he's close. The Apostle Paul, before he was known by that name, was called Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus harassed Christians. He oppressed the early church. So the resurrected Jesus confronted Saul. And when he did, this is what Jesus said to him. He said, why are you persecuting me? Look at that are you persecuting me? He'd been harassing Christians. He was persecuting the church. But notice how Jesus personalized that pain. Why are you persecuting me? That's how close God seeks to be in our life, that He sees, He hears, He knows, He feels what we walk through. The name Jehovah, Yahweh, reveals that God seeks to be personally involved in what we go through. From time to time, we think he's forgotten us. He's moved on. There's another people that he favors. But the truth of the name, the name of the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, is that God remains close He is not limited by time or space or situation. He stays close to us. K. Arthur, Bible teacher, author, writes this. When you need assurance that God is there keeping his promises, never changing, even though we have wavered in our promises to him, remember and run toward his name. Jehovah. Just stand with me. Moses was living in a moment of contradiction. Like things seemed one way and they were working out another way. He sees a bush on fire, not consumed. That's unexplainable. That's a contradiction. That doesn't make sense. As we live our faith life, we encounter moments where things don't make sense and we can't resolve the contradiction. Why is this working out this way? If God is for me, not against me, why is this happening? And a lot of those moments of contradiction can create A crisis of faith. Like, what are you going to believe when you're standing in a contradiction? Like, what are you going to do the next time you find yourself at a place where the math, the spiritual math is not adding up? Two plus two is not equaling four. Like, what are you going to do? I'll tell you what we do a lot of times. We throw away our ball and we go home. We don't want to play with God no more. Because he doesn't seem to be doing things in a way that resolves all the contradictions. And sometimes we lose hold of our faith in those spaces and places. And what I'm challenging you to do today, based upon what God urged, I want you to remember this name. I'm giving you this exclusive revelation with the goal that you'll have a name in front of you and you should never, ever forget this name. My name is Jehovah. My name is Yahweh. And my desire is to be so close to you that I am the solution for your life. Not a solution, the solution. So don't run away in moments of contradiction. But proclaim the name of the Lord, Jehovah, and run to.